Hey, good morning, youth. It's good to be with you again today to open up God's Word and to study the book of Exodus. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and find Exodus chapter 28. Exodus chapter 28. Over the last few weeks, God has given Moses instructions on how to build the tabernacle. This is the the dwelling place of God with man. It's going to be the place where the sacrifices are given, where the priests work, where God's mercy and glory will dwell in the Holy of Holies. This this is the most important place in the uh, nation of Israel at the time. And so uh, we've been spending a lot of time, and, and Moses gives a lot of time in his book of Exodus to the tabernacle. I mean, you think from Exodus 20 and 21, where we get the Ten Commandments and the beginning of the law, almost all the way through the rest of the, the book of Exodus is talking about the building of the tabernacle, the practice of the priests, the actual construction of the tabernacle. I mean, almost half of the book is dedicated to this one thing. And so hopefully you recognize that there's some importance given, some emphasis given with that much space allotted for the tabernacle and the work of the priests. Last week we saw that all of the place, all of the pieces of the tabernacle and the tabernacle itself is actually a shadow that's pointing to the substance of the new covenant in Christ, where the tabernacle is the uh, temporary dwelling place of God. By His Spirit, God dwells with us permanently through the work of Jesus. And today, we're going to continue that theme of types and shadows in the uh, role and work of the priests in the Mosaic Covenant. These priests were the ones who would offer sacrifices on behalf of the people of Israel. But they had to have the right clothing, they had to have the right anointing, they had to have the right materials, all in order to do their work. Exodus chapter 28 through 31 explains to you and me that Israel needs a lot of things for the priests to actually accomplish their tasks. But what we're going to find is that none of these tasks and none of these things are perfect. In and of themselves, they can never fully finish the work that God gives them. So all of the things that we find in the the work of the priest and the garments of the priest and the practice of sacrifice, all of these things are going to find their fulfillment in something much greater than themselves. And we'll get to that here in just a little bit. But first, we're going to pick up in Exodus chapter 28 with imperfect priests. We're going to find that the priests of Israel were imperfect priests. Let's start in verse 1. God says, Then bring near to you Aaron, your brother, and his sons with him from among the people of Israel to serve me as priests, Aaron and Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, Eleazar and Ithamar. And you shall make holy garments for Aaron your brother, for glory and for beauty. You shall speak to all the skillful, whom I have filled with a spirit of skill, that they make Aaron's garments to consecrate him for my priesthood. These are the garments that they shall make, a breastplate, an ephod, a robe, a coat of checkerwork, a turban, and a sash. They shall make holy garments for Aaron your brother and his sons to serve me as priests. They shall receive gold, blue and purple and scarlet yarns, and fine twined linen. Let's pray before we go any further. God in heaven, we're thankful for your word. And Lord, we're thankful that you have written down through your servant Moses all of the intricate details of the old covenant. God, this is your story Uh, This Bible is your word, and and we need to know it so that we might know you. And Lord, we won't understand the beauty and the glory of the new covenant until we understand what the old covenant was, what it was meant to do, what it wasn't meant to do. 
And so, Lord, we pray that you would give us great insight, that your spirit would open up our eyes to see your truth, to believe it, to know it, and to be transformed by it. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So the Lord continues to give Moses more instructions. Remember, Moses is on Mount Sinai, hearing the word of the Lord, getting instructions and directions for how the people of Israel are going to live. And now we're moving on to the garments or the clothing of the priests. So Aaron, Moses' brother, and Aaron's sons were going to serve as the first priests of Israel. They would offer sacrifice. They go into the holy place. They maintain the tabernacle. They are, in a word, going to be the mediators between God and the people of Israel. These priests are going to serve that mediator function as priests. But they can only do these things on God's terms. So first, they need the right clothes. They need to be equipped for the specific purpose that God gives them. So notice in verse 2, God says to Moses, You shall make holy garments for Aaron your brother, for glory and for beauty. We don't want to miss this. This isn't the most important aspect of this text, but I do think it's important for us to to recognize. Moses hears from the Lord that that God wants his people to make things that are glorious and beautiful. So so what what does that mean for you and me? I think it means that we need to care that the things that we do with our lives and the things that we create are beautiful. We should care about the forms of things because they bring delight to people. So I don't want to belabor this point, but you think about all of the things that you enjoy doing. Maybe you, maybe you like to write, or maybe you like to play music, or maybe you are really good at a sport, or maybe you're a really good cook, you like to make good meals, or maybe you have some other kind of skill or craft or hobby that you enjoy. Whatever it is, this text, I think, reminds us that we can do those things to the glory of God. But it doesn't just have to be to the glory of God and we don't have to worry about what it actually is. No, we can actually do something that's that's beautiful, that's delightful. All of those things that I mentioned, writing, music, sports, a good meal, craft, your your work, they ought to be beautiful. They, They ought to have the aroma of Christ in them. They ought to be something well done. There's a story of Martin Luther, the Protestant reformer, And there was a shoemaker who came to faith and went to Luther and didn't know what to do with his life. He had just became a Christian. Uh, He made shoes. He was a cobbler. And so he goes to Luther. He says, Dr. Luther, uh, should I uh, go into the ministry? Uh, How do I follow Jesus? How do I love Christ well? And uh, history says that Luther told this man, uh, what you should do is you should make the best shoes that that you can make and sell them for a reasonable price. And the point of that is, There is no sacred, secular divide here. All of our work, all of our hobbies, all of our enjoyment can be given over to the Lord in a way that's both glorious and beautiful. All right, we have to keep going, but I think that's important for us to recognize as we think about the work of these uh, craftsmen as they make the garments for the priests. So this priest has to make uh, make sure that he's wearing the right clothes. First, he needs a breast piece. So think like a piece of armor or a vest. And on it are stones with the names of the tribes of Israel, 12 precious stones, and on them are etched the tribes of Israel. Just like the table of the showbread in the tabernacle, one of the reasons why we see this is because the priest is going to represent all of the people of God before him. So all of God's people will be remembered and represented on the breastplate. Now look at verse 30. Go down Exodus chapter 28, find verse 30. There's an interesting verse here. It says, 
And in the breastpiece of judgment, you shall put the Urim and the Thummim, and they shall be on Aaron's heart when he goes in before the Lord. Thus Aaron shall bear the judgment of the people of Israel on his heart before the Lord regularly. Now what, what are the Urim and the Thummim? Well, the short answer is we don't know. Uh, we don't know what these two things were. Many scholars think that they were some kind of a device used in order to make decisions. So you think about uh, in Acts chapter 1, the disciples were in the upper room, they were praying, and they were trying to decide who was going to be the next apostle to replace Judas. And what we see Peter do is he prays, and then he casts lots. He literally casts basically dice and leaves this decision up to chance. Now, this is not prescriptive for us. So if you have a big decision to make, I don't think you should just roll the dice on it or consult a magic eight ball. But it was a way for God's people to say, God, even, even chance, even things that seem random are under your sovereign control. So a lot of people think that the Urim and the Thummim were some kind of device used to make judgments. Perhaps it was like a black stone and a white stone and someone would ask the priest, should I do this or that? And he would take out the Urim or the Thummim and whichever one he brought out, the white stone or the black, that's what decision ought to be made. The short answer is, though, is we don't know. But whatever it was, it was used by the priest to bring judgment, to discern, to make decisions. And he needed that next to his heart because that was the role of the priest. He was going to be the mediator. He was going to intercede on behalf of God's people. At any rate, the priest used them to inquire of God. And, and just a side note, how wonderful is it? You think about the, the Urim and the Thummim. We don't know exactly what those were. We know that they were used to make some kind of decision. But, but how great is it to know that you and I don't have something like the Urim and the Thummim. We have something so much better, right? As Christians, you and I have the very Spirit of God in us. And we get to be led and guided by His leadership and His wisdom and His Word. I mean, we have the full canon of Scripture to lead us and to guide us. God has clearly spoken to us in so many ways, and He's filled us with His Spirit, and which is not a spirit of foolishness, but a spirit of wisdom and power. And uh, we, we'll get more to that in a bit, but just to know that the new covenant, what we get to enjoy as Christians is far better, far better than what we read about here. All right, so he has the breastplate. Next, he needs an ephod and a robe. So think like an apron. This would be like a, a blue, uh, fine twine linen, this, this, this uh, robe that he would wear that had a, um, an apron above it. And on the shoulder straps of this ephod, this apron, were two onyx stones, two black stones, and on these stones were etched the names of the tribes of Israel. I mean, again, the priest is going to represent the people of Israel, the people of God before him. Now, on the bottom of his robe were pomegranates and bells. And on, they would go one after the other. Pomegranate, bell, pomegranate, bell. And this would obviously make sounds as the priest moved and worked in the tabernacle. It was apparently also used, history tells us, uh, the bells were used to check to see if the priest was still alive. So you think about going into the Holy of Holies, the priest is the only person who can go in there. Uh, it's covered by a thick veil. And if he isn't holy, if he hasn't been consecrated to the Lord, if he hasn't done all that he needs to do to approach God in a worthy manner, then he could be struck down dead. And how would the other priests know? How would the other priests know that the priest inside the Holy of Holies has died or if he's still alive? Well, the answer is, they would listen for the bells. And if they could still hear the bells ringing, they knew that the priest was still alive. But if the bells stopped, 
then that would probably indicate that God had put this man to death for whatever reason. So he has the breastplate, he has the ephod and the robe. Next, the priest needs a turban, a turban or a headpiece. And on that, there is a plaque, there's a, um, an insignia that says, Holy to the Lord. And the priest also needs a coat to wear and a sash to wear over the coat. He, he needs all of these things to put on before he can go into the presence of God. So, so here's the point so far. In Exodus 28 and 29, what we see is that the priests of Israel had to be covered up by holy things in order to enter into God's presence and in order to do their priestly work. The names of Israel's tribes were engraved on their garments multiple times so that they might remember who they are being a priest for, who they are mediating for. These priests, although instituted by the Mosaic Covenant, we clearly see are imperfect. They in and of themselves are not holy. They in and of themselves are not right. They in and of themselves have to have something covering them in order for them to move on in their work. Chapter 29 goes into detail on how these priests would have been consecrated or set apart for their work. There were three sacrifices, one bull and two goats, uh, two rams rather, and they had to be offered for the priests. I mean, the priests themselves had to have a sacrifice. I mean, listen to God's word on the third sacrifice. Find Exodus 29, so flip over to the next chapter, and find verse 19. Exodus 29, starting in verse 19. He says, you shall take the other ram, that's the third sacrifice, and Aaron and his sons shall lay their hands on the head of the ram. And you shall kill the ram and take part of its blood and put it on the tip of the right ear of Aaron and on the tips of the right ears of his sons and on the thumbs of their right hands and on the great toes of their right feet and throw the rest of the blood against the sides of the altar. Then you shall take part of the blood that is on the altar and of the anointing oil and sprinkle it on Aaron and his garments and on his sons and his son's garments with them. He and his garments shall be holy and his sons and his son's garments with him. All right, so what's going on here? The sacrifices are being made not for the people of Israel. They're being made for the priests. The priests have to have a sacrifice. They have to have atonement given for them in order to work. And then some of that blood of the sacrifice was put on their right ear their right thumb, and the big toe of their right foot. One commentator explains that practice like, like this. He says, The priest must have consecrated ears ever to listen to God's holy voice, consecrated hands at all times to do holy deeds, and consecrated feet to walk evermore in holy ways. When the blood was applied to the priests, when it was sprinkled onto their robes, they were made holy. They had to be made holy because they weren't holy. The blood applied to them made them holy and made them able to be the mediator, to be the priest for Israel. These priests, they needed a substitute in order to be priests. Aaron and his sons were needed as the priests of Israel, but they were far from perfect. They were imperfect priests. And those imperfect priests offer up a continuous work. That's our second point this morning. It's a continuous work in the tabernacle. That's the story of Exodus chapter 30. These sacrifices that the priests are going to make on behalf of Israel will happen day after day after day. 
Chapter 30 shows us some of the elements required for this work. So first, in Exodus 30, we see that there's going to be an altar for incense. And this is just incense, the, something that you would burn to create an aroma or a smell in the room. It will provide a pleasing aroma and actually serve as a kind of offering to God each morning. It's a way, a way in other words, to almost purify the tabernacle, to purify the place where unholy people have been working. Next, we see a census tax for the tabernacle. You see that starting in verse 11. Israel was supposed to pay a tax that the tabernacle, the priests would use for the service of the tabernacle. Now, something interesting about this tax is what is going to be given by each person. Look at verse 13 of Exodus chapter 30. It says, Each one who is numbered in the census shall give this, half a shekel according to the shekel of the sanctuary. The shekel is 20 giras. Half a shekel as an offering to the Lord. Everyone who is numbered in the census from 20 years old and upward shall give the Lord's offering. The rich shall not give more and the poor shall not give less than half the shekel, than the half shekel when you give the Lord's offering to make atonement for your lives. So something interesting about this tax is that it's even. Everyone pays the same. The poor don't pay more. The, I mean, the poor don't pay less. The rich don't pay more. Every person in the nation of Israel, young or old, rich or poor, all had the same need for the tabernacle's work. And in a sense, they all had the same kind of indebtedness to the priests for offering sacrifices on their behalf. I mean, you keep going in verse 16 of this chapter, even calls the tax atonement money. What an interesting way to think about it, that this money is atonement money. Because what's going to be bought with this money are the sacrifices of atonement through the Mosaic Covenant. Like through this tax, through this money, their atonement and their sacrifice would be secured and offered. But you notice the problem here. This offering would continue year after year after year. There would always be a tax because there would always be a sacrifice needed. Well, the next thing we see is that the priests would continually need to be prepared to offer those sacrifices. So verses 17 through 21 describe the bronze basin where the priests would wash themselves. So outside the tabernacle in the court, there would be a bronze basin where the priests would wash themselves after every work that they did. Every sacrifice, every time they entered the tent, every time they would burn an offering, they would have to wash themselves. Now look at Exodus chapter 30, verse 21. God says to Moses, They shall wash their hands and their feet so that they may not die. It shall be a statute forever to them, even to him and to his offspring throughout their generations. What we don't need to miss in this text is that for the Mosaic Covenant on its own, this old covenant, there is no end in sight to this practice. There's, there's no end in sight to this process of priests coming before the Lord, washing in the basin, offering sacrifices, washing again, offering sacrifices, washing again, day in and day out, forever. It says that this would be a statute forever for the priests. They would always need anointing oil. They would always need sacrifices. They would always need incense and washings and taxes. And once Aaron died, once this priest died, because everyone dies, right? Another priest would take on his work. And then another. 
and then another, and then another. I mean, on and on it would go. This good God-honoring practice of the Mosaic system had no expiration date that the people of Israel could ever see. And that's what the law does. Students, don't miss this. The law is not meant to save you. The law is meant for you to see and to realize that you can't keep this up. The law of God is given to reveal to you and me that we are in desperate need of a greater sacrifice. We're in desperate need of a greater offering. We're in desperate need to be made holy, to be truly washed clean, to be truly made right, to truly have the sacrifice applied to us. This Mosaic Covenant is not meant to be the once and for all promise. It's pointing us to something even greater. We'll get to that here in just a moment. All right, so we've seen that in the Mosaic Covenant, we have imperfect priests and we have a continuous work. Next, we're going to see that there is a limited filling, a limited filling. And we see this in chapter 31, verses 1 through 11. These priests and these sacrifices needed the materials to get to work. So God decides to work through his people in order to bring these things about. So find with me Exodus 31. We're going to read just a few verses. Starting in verse 1, it says, The Lord said to Moses, See, I have called by name Bezalel, the son of Uri, son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah, and I have filled him with the Spirit of God, with ability and intelligence, with knowledge and all craftsmanship, to devise artistic designs, to work in gold, silver, and bronze, in cutting stones for setting and in carving wood, to work in every craft. And behold, I have appointed with him Aholiab, the son of Ahisamach, of the tribe of Dan, And I have given to all able men ability that they may make all that I have commanded you, the tent of meeting, the ark of the testimony, and the mercy seat that's on it, and all the furnishings of the tent, the table and its utensils, and the pure lampstand with all its utensils, and the altar of incense, and the altar of burnt offering with all its utensils, and the basin and its stand, and the finely worked garments, the holy garments for Aaron the priest, and the garments of his sons for their holy service as priests, and the anointing oil, and the fragrant incense for the holy place, According to all that I have commanded you, they shall do. So, Bezalel and Aholiab, God says, would be filled with the Spirit of God in order to accomplish these tasks. And don't miss this. Up until this point, that has never happened before. In the story of the Bible, up until Exodus 31, this kind of filling of the Spirit of God has never happened before. This is a new thing. God's Spirit would fill them and empower them and use them for the good of Israel, for the good of the people of God. In other words, God is giving Aholiab and Bezalel spiritual gifts. Now, you and I as Christians, on this side of the story of Christianity, on this side of the story of God, we have an idea of what spiritual gifts are. We have some some lists of some texts in the New Testament, things like 1 Corinthians 12, Um, Ephesians 4, places like that. Things like the gift of mercy, right? Or the gift of faith or the gift of evangelism. These are gifts that God gives to his people. We find these lists all over the place, but but we need to remember that these lists are not intended to be exhaustive. There's four, maybe five places in the New Testament where you see lists of spiritual gifts. And if you add them all together, they're, they're not intended to give you a definitive list that these are the only gifts that God's Spirit gives 
and nothing more. No, uh, these two men quite literally have been given the spiritual gift of craftsmanship. I mean, they've been given the spiritual gift of, of skill and labor to be uh, gold and silver workers, to be smiths and carpenters. Now, how do we know if a gift is spirit-given? Because maybe you have talents and gifts that you've been given. Maybe you find yourself really good at certain things or, or really, uh, it's, some things are really easy for you that may be hard for other people. How do, we know that if these, how do we know that these gifts may be actually spiritual gifts? Well, flip over very quickly to uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 12. 1 Corinthians chapter 12 gives us one of these lists of spiritual gifts, but it also gives us the reason for why the Spirit gives gifts. So 1 Corinthians chapter 12, starting in verse 4. This is what Paul writes to the church in Corinth. He says, now, there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. There are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all and everyone. Here's the key, verse 7. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. For the common good. So gifts are given by the Spirit of God to the people of God for the common good. Or, in other words, for the good of God's people, for the good of the church. So that's what we see with the Holy Ab and Bezalel. They've been given a gift by the Spirit for the service of the church. And in the same way, students, maybe you've been given a gift. If, if you're a Christian, we'll get to this in a minute, but if you're a Christian, you've been given spiritual gifts. And we don't know what they are. Uh, I mean, I just can't automatically tell you what your gift is, but you may know, you may have an idea of, well, man, I'm, I'm really good at having conversations or I'm really good at encouraging people or I'm, I'm really good at serving or I'm, I'm really good at believing God's promises when it's hard. Students, I would encourage you, find out what your spiritual gift is. Now, there are a lot of ways to do that. I mean, some of you, probably all of you, at some point have taken what's called a spiritual gifts inventory, like a little test that tells you what your gifts might be. It gives you some questions to answer. And there's a place for that. Those things I think are helpful. But I've taken those tests enough that, uh, if I want to, I can probably give myself any spiritual gift that I want. Maybe a better way to find out what your spiritual gifts are is to serve the body of Christ, to invest yourself in the life of the church, and to find affirmation from brothers and sisters around you in the things that you're doing well. So, so maybe you work in preschool, or maybe you work in the nursery on Sundays. Maybe you help out with a parent's class, or maybe you are a part of a small group. And as you're serving and investing in that group, as you're serving and investing in the church, ask brothers and sisters, hey, what do you see the Lord doing in my life? Are there things that you see me doing that I could work on? Or are there some things that you see that I'm doing that I'm doing well? And through the affirmation of brothers and sisters around you, I think you'll be able to find more definitively what kind of gifts the Spirit has given you. But God has given in this text a holy ab and Bezalel, the Spirit of God, and they've gifted him with craftsmanship. But here's the problem. Right now, the people of Israel number in the millions, and they're surrounding the mountain there at Mount Sinai, and only two people are receiving the gifts of the Spirit. Only two people are being filled with the Spirit of God. This filling is limited. It's a limited filling. Only two people seem to have received it. And in the Old Covenant, only certain people occasionally seem to receive the giftings and the filling that comes from God's Spirit. 
He's definitely active in Israel. Don't, don't, mis, don't misinterpret what I'm saying. In the Old Testament, in the Old Covenant, God's Spirit is working, He's present, He's active, He's sustaining uh, people by His grace and by His power, but His work is not all-encompassing. It isn't common to all people. It's a limited work. So here we see in this text, we have imperfect priests, a continuous work, limited filling of the Spirit. And last but not least, in verses 12 through 18 of Exodus 31, we have only temporary rest. A temporary rest. So finally, we receive instruction after God has given instruction for how the tabernacle ought to be built, how the things of the priests ought to be built, how the priests might serve. Now we receive instruction, we receive instruction on the Sabbath for Israel. Now that's the fourth commandment out of the Ten Commandments. It's a big deal to rest on the seventh day. And God wants Moses and Israel to never, ever forget it. So look at verse 12 of Exodus 31. It says, And the Lord said to Moses, You are to speak to the people of Israel and say, Above all, you shall keep my Sabbaths, for this is a sign between me and you throughout your generations, that you may know that I, the Lord, sanctify you. You shall keep the Sabbath, because it is holy for you. Everyone who profanes it shall be put to death. Whoever does any work on it, that soul shall be cut off from among his people. Six days shall, you, shall work be done, but the seventh day is a Sabbath of solemn rest, holy to the Lord. Whoever does any work on the Sabbath day shall be put to death. Therefore, the people of Israel shall keep the Sabbath, observing the Sabbath throughout the generations as a covenant forever. It is a sign forever between me and the people of Israel that in six days the Lord made the heaven and earth, and on the seventh day he rested and was refreshed. And he gave to Moses, when he had finished speaking with him on Mount Sinai, the two tablets of the testimony, tablets of stone, written with the finger of God. So this Sabbath rest is given by God to Israel that every seven days they would rest from their labor. And this, this Sabbath was instituted in creation. I mean, God says, I worked six days and rested on the seventh. And I, I did that as a model for you. So now his people ought to follow suit. They labor for six days and they rest on the seventh. Now, very practically, this would contrast Israel with the rest of the known world. That one day out of the week, one day out of seven, all of God's people would rest. They wouldn't toil. They wouldn't labor. They would rest and enjoy the Lord. But only one day out of the week is when the Sabbath rest would come. Then, it would be back to their labors, back to their toil, back to their sacrifices. Over and over again, they would catch a glimpse. They would get a taste of Sabbath rest only for it to evaporate into more work, into more sacrifice, into more offerings. The Sabbath commanded in the Mosaic Covenant is a good, God-honoring, but temporary rest. It's good, but it, it doesn't last. So to recap, on these chapters of Exodus... Under the Old Covenant, the Mosaic Covenant, we have imperfect priests doing continual work. And we have a limited filling of the Spirit and only temporary rest. The priests under Moses cannot finish the job. They cannot offer enough sacrifices. And the people of Israel only experience a glimpse of God's power through His Spirit and only a glimpse of true rest. But thanks be to God, the Mosaic Covenant is called the Old Covenant for a reason. It has been fulfilled 
in Jesus. And now a new covenant takes its place, a better covenant. All of the old covenant points us forward to Jesus and his new covenant with the church. Now find Hebrews chapter 7. As we conclude this morning, all that we've read of the last two weeks of the institution of the tabernacle, the garments of the priest, the work of the priest, the offerings, the sacrifices, all of this information that we've been given is what we need to truly appreciate what's going on in the New Testament. It's what we need to really appreciate what's going on in this new covenant. So now that we've seen the workings of the tabernacle and of the priests, let's read about Jesus. We're going to start Hebrews chapter 7, starting in verse 18. We're going to read a good chunk of this text. So just follow along, think about all that we've learned over the last two weeks, and and see what good news this is for us. All right? Hebrews chapter 7, starting in verse 18. For on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness. For the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. And it was not without an oath. For those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath. But this one was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he, that's Jesus, holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. Now the point in what we are saying is this, we have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent or tabernacle that the Lord set up, not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus, it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Now, if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. They serve a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tabernacle or the tent, he was instructed by God saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. 
For he finds fault with them when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, for they did not continue in my covenant. And so I showed them no concern, declares the Lord, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people, and they shall not teach each one to his neighbor and each one to his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. In speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete is growing old and is ready to vanish away. Students, Jesus is our perfect priest. He's our perfect priest. He doesn't need sacrifices for himself. He is the perfect sacrifice. He's the perfect mediator between God and man. His sacrifice for sin was not continuously sacrificing uh, bulls and goats. No, his sacrifice for sin was once and for all. And now, as Hebrews 8.1 says that we just read, he is now seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. You think about the work of the priest, those bells ringing, it's because they were always standing, always working, always sacrificing. But Jesus is now seated at the right hand of God. He's done with his work in sacrificing. He doesn't have to stand anymore. He gets to sit down because the work is done. This new covenant is infinitely better than the old. Our relationship with God is unbroken and unchanging because our priest and mediator is God the Son. And now His Holy Spirit fills all of us. We all now receive the promised Spirit by faith. And now the temporary rest that was uh, shown in the old covenant introduced in the Moses is now fulfilled in Christ. Flip over just a couple of uh, pages to Hebrews chapter 4. Hebrews chapter 4, starting in verse 8. And, and the, the writer of Hebrews is talking about the rest that is introduced in the Mosaic Covenant. And then after Moses comes Joshua, who leads the people of Israel into the Promised Land. Look at verse 8. It says, For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. For the word of the Lord is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. No creature is hidden from his sight but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Students, if we have Christ, we have been promised not a temporary rest, but an everlasting rest. We've been promised eternal life through Jesus Christ. And we get to rest in his work. We get to rest in his adoption as sons and daughters into the family of God. We get to rest 
in his work as our mediator. We get to rest in him. Students, we need to know the Old Testament. Hopefully you see that. We, we need to learn and study the law of Moses. We need to learn and understand the, the story of what's going on in the Bible in the Old Testament because we need to know where the story has been to more clearly understand where we are and where it's going. We will not worship God in truth if we do not know the truth. So what was imperfect has now been made perfect. What was a continuous work is now a finished work. What was a limited filling of the Spirit is now free to everyone who is in Christ Jesus. And what was a temporary rest is now everlasting in Christ. Students, I I hope and pray that this is encouraging to you to know that you and I get to be a part of a better covenant, a new covenant, the fullness of the covenant, the thing the old covenant was pointing to, we get to enjoy today. To strive to enter that rest, rest in the finished work of Christ. Place your faith in Him in all things. Let's pray. Father, we thank You that You saw fit to lead Moses to write down the details of the law. We thank you that that you saw fit to, to retain these truths, these stories for us so that we might see them and read them and study them and understand what the old covenant was all about. Father, I pray that we would see when we look at the old covenant, we can appreciate how much better the new covenant is. What was originally introduced in types and shadows, in temporary things, are now finding their fullness and the glory and the beauty in the new covenant. God, your word tells us that all the promises of God find their yes and amen in Christ. And so I pray that by faith we would join in your covenant, that by grace we would be grafted into your family, that we would get to a to to have our lives made clean and made holy, that that your sacrifice could be attributed to us, that we could be saved from our sins, justified by your sacrifice. Pray, Lord, that we might know and recognize the filling of your Spirit in our lives, that we would exercise the gifts that you've given us by that same Spirit. And God, that you would put in our hearts a great hope for the rest that awaits us at your return when you come to make all things right, when you redeem and reconcile all things to yourself. God, we long for that day. Until it comes, we pray that you would keep us faithful, faithful to your word, faithful to you. In Jesus' name, amen.